Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. And this is our Tales from the Crypt Present series and our review of Demon Knight. Starring Billy Zane, William Sadler, Jada Pinkett, CCH Pounder, Thomas Hayden Church, and John Kassir. Directed by Ernest Dickerson and Gilbert Adler. Released in 1995 on a budget of $12 million, grossed $21 million at the box office. So, okay, Ron. So, Tales from the Crypt, man. Uh, give me the lowdown. You know, what's your connection to this, you know, loved series by a lot of folks? Well, when you grow up with stolen HBO like I did, <laughs> you just you learn to learn you you learn to embrace certain things. And for me, you know, I didn't care about Dream On or uh, the Larry Sanders Show or any of that stuff. For me, it was always you'd hear that creepy organ music, da 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 da, da and then I was either right there ready to watch it, or I was like fleeing the television. There was no, <laughs> depending on my age, there was absolutely no middle ground. When I was a kid, the Crypt Keeper was like the creepiest thing on television, and then once I hit, you know. 12 or 13, it became the most awesome thing on television. <laughs> I, I did not grow up with HBO, stolen or otherwise, in the house. Occasionally, we had Showtime. That was our, our channel of go-to. But I did know what Tales from the Crypt was because it went into syndication at some point. And it was after, I think, it had really been a thing. And by the time I got around to it, I was in my teen years, and it just didn't work for me. And I want to tell you what ruined it for me. You can blame all of it on the fact that Friday the 13th, the series, was such a huge disappointment. Uh, <laughs> so, and I watched that show from beginning to end. So, I, yeah. And, there, and by the way, folks, there will never be a podcast about that show. No, no. So, <laughs> I remember some of those episodes vividly, most of them for being as bad as they were. It's also the reason I never watched Freddy's Nightmares. And I just figured, ah, this is another one of those. But now, it would have been hard to not be a horror fan and not know who the Crypt Kicker was keeper was and no tales from the crypt so i was aware of it and i know i have seen episodes here and there but i did not grow up as a fan of it i didn't necessarily didn't like it it was just something i never watched or paid attention to so this is going to be interesting to go in with somebody who was a super fan of it growing up did you did you miss the cartoon there was a cartoon starring the crypt keeper <laughs> i did not but i'm not surprised they had the <laughs> crypt keeper and the vault keeper they went back to the ec Comics source <laughs> material and they found all the various keepers they could bring out they were all in like a saturday morning cartoon series oh wow well you know that was back i'll say this now there are no good saturday morning cartoons anymore i don't know that there are cartoons anymore on saturday mornings that are not disney related and on their channel you know so i'm not surprised there was a cartoon of this there was a cartoon of everything else there might as well have been one of this so it, it would be a good double feature with like uh the Toxic Crusaders <laughs> and exactly. the horribly inappropriate This Shouldn't Be a Cartoon cartoon series. <laughs> exactly. That, that, that sounds like something you could write about over at your website, for sure. So, uh, but uh, yeah, That'll be a good Den of Geek feature. Thanks for that. <laughs> I did remember when this movie came out, and I didn't see it. And, and I'm going to say this. I have never seen this movie on purpose until we did it for this review. And it wasn't that I just you know didn't want to or anything. It was just one of those things I just didn't watch. By 1995... I had really kind of gotten out of my horror movie phase. I, I went and saw two horror movies inside of two years, and I can tell you which ones they were. I went and saw Halloween 6 at the Dollar Theater in 1995, <laughs> and I saw Scream in 1996. Now, Scream reignited the passion, but really only after it came out on VHS. I remember seeing that in theaters and going, yeah, that's fine, and, and not really getting it, and then watching it the next time around and be like, oh, yeah, this is you know the amazing thing that it was. 
And it got me back into horror. But you know, anybody that's that's listened to our Halloween series knows that while I find kitschy fun in Halloween Six, I can't dare defend it as being anything you know competent. And so I was done with horror at this point. I just I was I was kind of out of it. I was really much more into music at this point. So film was really kind of taking the backseat for me. So I didn't ever catch this. Now I know I've seen pieces of it here and there. And moreover, I think I've seen every show that the people that star in this movie have been on. I saw. I think I've seen everything Thomas Hayden Church has ever been on in television going back to Ned and Stacy. See, I fell in love with Deborah Messing long before any of you did. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a... That's one from the, the archives right there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was in this was in the heart of Wings Mania. So I mean <laughs> yeah. Thomas Hayden Church was a kid. Yes, exactly. He was the Wings guy. I knew Jada Pinkett from Menace to Society, which I will still hold up as a better film of urban gang violence than Boys in the Hood. Do anybody want to argue that one with me? Just bring it on, because I got all day on that. And then CTH Pounder, I learned of her later, of course, because I was a huge Shield fan, and she was one of my favorite characters of the Shield. So I knew her, and then William Sadler will always be the guy doing naked yoga at the beginning of uh, Die Hard 2. (laughs) (laughs) For me. I know he's in the Shaw Redemption and and then Billy Zane, who well I'll just go ahead and say it. When you need someone to give a hilariously bad performance, no matter what the tone of the film is, he's your guy. Whether it's the Phantom or Titanic or Dead Calm or this movie or anything else he's in, critters, whatever. He's always the same guy. And I actually love him for it. I think he's hilarious. So that's my connection to this is I knew everyone that was in it and seeing pieces of it here and there on television growing up, I kind of knew what was going on, but I didn't know anything about it, honestly, before I flipped it on to watch it before this review. I can't believe you didn't know CCH Pounder from her pivotal role in RoboCop 3. I have tried to erase RoboCop 3 from the memory banks for years. Oh, it's not. (laughs) Okay, I won't say it's not that bad. It is that bad. But, I mean, it got Fred Decker work, and that's, you know, you can't complain about that. I mean... This he did true. like Monster Squad. He deserves like all the work he can get. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But yeah, but no, that's my connection to this. So I did not see this until you know we got ready to do this for review. And I wanted to ask you, did you see it when it came out in theaters or what? No, I did not see it when it came out in theaters. I did watch it when it came on stolen HBO. <laughs> because why wouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we hardly ever went to the theater in that time period. Yeah. Because uh, that was before they built the good new movie theater near my house. <laughs> So all we had was a rundown, uh, you know, like eight eight screen multiplex where the doors were broken and the speakers rattled because they busted one out and, and and you know just kind of run down. But yes, HBO as usual was my first exposure to this flick, just like it was my first exposure to the seminal Billy Zane classic. Uh, survival Island. <laughs> I have never crossed that one either. It's it's him and some random guy, uh, some random Spanish guy, and his then girlfriend Kelly Brooke, <laughs> who is widely available naked on the internet, <laughs> and she's one of those British page three girls or whatever, the topless models that they put in their excuses for newspapers, <laughs> and she has. Two great big talents. <laughs> 
that that movie just sounds like another bad ripoff of the most dangerous game story that I read in elementary school growing up. So. That's, that's a fair. That's definitely a fair assessment. But Billy Zane does play Billy Zane quite well. Well, I, as I would expect him to do. So, and uh, I, you know, I don't know. Um, that, that I find that to be fun. But now you you actually know that there are people. Uh, the, some of the people in this had connection to the show otherwise, right? Yes, William Sadler. Uh, the whole impetus behind us watching this flick was one day I discovered that basically all the episodes of Tales from the Crypt are on YouTube. So I was like, all right, cool. I haven't seen this in, you know, since 1990, whatever. So I fire up the first episode, and right there is William Sadler playing an executioner who gets fired and then becomes a uh, basically a freelance electrical vigilante. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> killing people who he feels deserve to die in usually via electrocution. And he's great in it. He's great in the episode. Uh, so I figured, you know, why not? And then when I saw he was in demon night, which I'd forgotten that he was the guy, it, it just kind of became an obvious choice when, when, especially when I couldn't talk you into taking on 92 episodes <laughs> of tales from the crypt. Yeah. This is another one of those Twitter conversations that started with like, we got to find a way to do this. And having just finished, you know, Buffy the vampire slayer and it's 140 some odd episode run. I was like, I don't, another 92. I don't know. And no one in 2015, Brian and I are going to start angel. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. They can squeeze another whole show in there, <laughs> but I knew there were movies because I know the second movie. Well, we'll talk about that next time. So I dug up on the internet and I was like, Hey, there are three, films that are Tales from the Crypt presents films, not the 72 Tales from the Crypt anthology, but there are three movies that got produced. What about those? And you were like, yeah, let's do it. And so I said, okay, I, I'm down for that because I had never seen Demon Knight or the third one, Ritual. I have seen Bordello of Blood. I have not seen Ritual. I did not know Ritual existed. <laughs> yeah. I don't know so. that many would. I, that, yeah, we'll talk about that when we get there. But uh, you know, it, when we're doing films here on Filmstrip, particularly horror films, the running joke amongst the staff is, can we find one Jay hasn't seen at least 300 times? And most <laughs> of the time, the answer is no. I've probably seen it being the, the consummate horror fan. But these were ones I hadn't seen. So I'm always down to go for something like that. Like If I, it, it, if I haven't seen it, I'm always curious to be the newbie on a show. That never happens So in this show. So I I was down for it. I was like, yes, I will do this. No problem. And, but again, I knew nothing about it before I, I went in and saw it. I didn't even watch the trailer to it before I, I put it in and just turned it on. And I, you know what, what I saw was very different than what I expected. I will say that now. So uh, very, very interesting. So, um, we get we get some more stuff too. Now, do you know the director from anything else? Because I don't know Ernest Dickerson from anywhere, and I got conflicting reports. Because in the movie, he's credited as the director, but on the internet, it tells me the producer had a lot of hand in it and actually reshot some of it too. So I don't know what the story is there. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the story is, but the director is a cat named Ernest Dickerson, as you mentioned before, who will be very well known to fans of The Walking Dead. He directed the second season finale, which is one of the show's higher moments, the one where the zombies uh, overrun Herschel's farm and distinguished character actor Scott Wilson, who was in In Cold Blood, let's not forget, yeah. stands there with a never-ending shotgun uh, with the <laughs> infinite ammo cheat code just blowing zombies away for a good five minutes while his farm <laughs> burns down around him. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful shot. And he's done some really good stuff, especially like as part of the Walking Dead team. He also did uh, a Masters of Horror episode, which take that for what you will. 
Well, again, I knew the guy had directed a lot of television. I think that that's uh, fine. And I'll be honest with you, this feels like a, a television show. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Low-budget horror can do that sometimes. And, uh, you know, the one of the tropes of good horror is confinement. And they certainly are going to do that in this film. I mean, it's it's mostly one set after the opening, which we'll talk about. But um, I, I don't know. I was impressed with most of what happened directorial wise, not knowing the guy from anything else, like I say, but like I say, everything I've read on the internet is that the producer did go back in and have some say on, on shots and maybe reshot some of it because they're double credited in a lot of places. So, you know, whether the DGA ever recognizes or not, that's, that's sort of what's out there. So, and, and he doesn't come back for the sequel. That one's actually done by Gilbert Adler. So, I don't know why you would have to reshoot behind the guy who shot the immortal juice. <laughs> well, you know, the, if you can frame Tupac correctly, surely you can get this right. So, <laughs> is that a two, that is a Tupac joint, right? I'm, I'm right. About yes, that, right? that I, is. I thought I thought I, remember, I get my West Coast and East Coast gangster rappers of the '90s mixed up in their film careers. But uh, I tell you what, though, Ron, why don't you you give us a plot summary? We'll, we'll get into this one. Tell us what happens in Demon Night. Okay, after the opening framing device starring the Crypt Keeper and featuring John Larroquette as an uncredited slasher, we get into the film. Breaker, played by William Sadler, has a key with an ancient power. The collector, Billy Zane, at the height of his powers, wants it back. The pursuit leads them to a small town, and after a fiery car crash and some gunfire, Breaker has escaped with a little help from Uncle Willie, played by legendary Dick Miller, and holed up in a former mission-turned-hotel run by Irene, CCH Pounder, and her niece, Geraldine, played by Jada Pinkett. That's when the collector shows up, looking for what's his. Caught up in the ensuing Rio Bravo situation are Hook with a Heart of Meat, Colleen, played by Brenda Bakey, who was Lana Turner in the L.A. Confidential. That's who that chick was, yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, hard to believe. She did that only a few short years after she did this movie. Wow. And then she fell off the face of the earth. Yes. Uh, her boyfriend, Roach, Thomas Aiden Church, and a whole host of other characters destined for the wood chipper, courtesy of the collector and his demon friends. Will the key be protected by the titular demon knight? Will Billy Zane eat all the sets? Will we sneak in our quota of nudity before the movie's over? Find out the answers to all these questions and more as we discuss Demon Knight. <laughs> I guess we should blow the ending also in the end. No, he doesn't get it back, and it winds up going to Jada Pinkett somehow. So we'll we'll get into that, I guess, as we get into the film. That's a, that's a good energetic plot summary. So I want to skip over the framing devices because we'll come back to those, I think, at the end. There's a, a, a prologue and an epilogue. We can talk about those. But I want to talk about the, the bulk of the film here. And the way it starts out with the car chase and the car wreck and the explosion. Have you ever seen a Charlie Sheen joint called The Wraith? Yes. Oh, I so was hoping you would say yes to that because that is a a childhood favorite of mine. It's been a long time since I revisited it. That one might be worth it some other day. But when I saw this scene and the car wrecked and then Billy Zane walked out of it along with the other guy basically getting out of it, I said, it's like I'm watching The Wraith but with the Smokey and the Bandit Trans Am. Yeah, it really did feel uh, pretty similar to the Wraith, and I thought for sure that one of them was going to, you know, well, I know how it is, but I figured the first time I watched it, I figured one of those guys was going to be some kind of ghost or a monster or something, or like a Terminator, Yeah, but 
Uh, it's Billy Zane. I do, I do like how they play with it at first, though. For about the first 10 or 15 minutes, you don't know which one's the the bad guy or the good guy. Like, it's framed in a way that Billy Zane is actually trying to stop the William Sadler character from doing something that would be bad. And, what we, of course, what we learn later is that that's not the, the case at all. But that's, a, that's playing with types, because Billy Zane can be the good guy or the bad guy. William Sadler is almost always the bad guy. So if you know their faces from anything, even at this point in their career, that would have that would have been the fake out. And that's certainly what I thought here. I was like, oh, Billy Saint's the good guy? Oh, cool. And so I, I thought that was going to be the fun we had. Well, it helps that, you know, uh, Breaker has that occult-looking tattoo on his hand. Yeah. And, and the first thing we see him do after he, you know, shoots a rifle at a car is try to steal another car. Yeah. So he's clearly not kind of – he's clearly setting himself up as the Cal Reese type of uh, hero yeah in which case he's slightly more anti-hero because he's not terribly friendly throughout the whole flick no he's a matter of fact he doesn't even really want to be around people he's just trying to hide and what we'll come to know is that symbol on his hand is a symbol of seven stars that when they're aligned it's the time for the demons to try to possess one of these keys. Now, explain to me the plot device known as the key here, because this is going to get played again, but in a different way, if I remember it correctly, in Bordello of Blood. Yes, it's the same key prop. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's supposed to be the same key or not. I would assume not, since Jada Jada Pinkett didn't have it. Yeah. Um, But basically, this key is a metal thing with a glass ball on top. And inside the glass ball is the blood of Jesus yeah. and many other people. Yeah. And apparently the either the key or the, the remnants of Jesus' blood turned this liquid inside the key into a magical demon-blocking, demon-killing force field MacGuffin device. Yeah, I love how it all gets laid out for us, is that through history, starting at the crucifixion, someone collected some of this blood, and there were all these keys that kept the demons locked up, and throughout time and history and apparently portals and places, they've collected almost all of them but this one. And so now it's the time they're coming after it. And through history, there has been a carrier that has been somewhat of an anti-hero, like you say, just someone that reluctantly carried the thing around through different places in time. And we get lots of flashbacks from these things. There's, it usually jumps like 2,000 years. It's somebody at, at Jesus' crucifixion, then a soldier in World War One, then Breaker. So, you know, there's apparently been more, though. And they're basically supposed to carry this thing until they identify who the next carrier of it will be, and then they pass it along and mix the blood, and it's it's all kind of hokey. Uh, but I'll say this, uh, for just the plot device, the MacGuffin that we're going to chase, I kind of liked it. It reminded me of some of the stuff Buffy would do. They would just, you know, for the one-off episodes, they would just throw this stuff around, and I, it kind of reminded me of one of those. So I was I was cool with it. It, it, it works to me because it feels like the exact same uh, kind of dumb plot device that you would get in an actual episode of Tales from the Crypt. It's just a two. It's just a two-parter with a little bit more star power, <laughs> and, and, and you know the same kind of hokey, uh, little slightly better special effects, but the same kind of hokey B movie comic book spirit. Well, I was going to say, was this what the show was mostly like? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, this is a good. This is definitely would fit well alongside the rest of the episodes. I mean, both 
at, at least two of the films would. I, you know, I, I would say that um, this one is more like the more serious episodes, mm-hmm. and then Bordello of Blood is a great example of when the show like decides to just be goofy and splattery. <laughs> Well, we'll get to Bordello in a bit, but you know, I always think about that when shows try to do movies because I remember the two X Files movies. If, right. you were, if you remember those, and it, they were examples of what the show kind of was. It was vacillated between the main story of alien abduction and then just bat bug nuts crazy, you know, religious imagery, and, and that's kind of what it was. So I wondered, I'm like, I bet this feels like a show, and it kind of feels blocked like a show. It feels written like a a show that got stuck together, you know, two episodes you can jam together for a hour and a half movie. And so I, you know, in that way it works, but I'll say this, we get introduced to our crowd pretty quick because breaker winds up at this old, it's an old church. That's now like a boarding house slash whorehouse slash kitchen. It's got, it's got lots going on in the, uh, the Alamo there or whatever they're trying to do, but we get our whole cadre of characters and you mentioned wally the uh the postal well no you didn't mention wally you mentioned uncle willie the the guy there at the beginning we got to talk about this dude of course most will probably remember him as mr futterman from the gremlins movies right right that's clearly his most famous role in this the modern era but dick miller has been in la has been a fixture in la forever i mean if you you can't throw a rock at a roger corman movie from the <laughs> 50s through the 70s without hitting Dick Miller. Uh, I mean, he was even in Rock and Roll High School. Wow. <laughs> so he's been around the block, is what you're saying. So. Oh, he's definitely in the That Guy Hall of Fame. <laughs> well, I, I of course, I know I've seen him in other stuff, but I always think of Gremlins when I've seen But he's fun. I mean, he's always playing like somebody that looks like he's been on a three-day bender and <laughs> needs, needs a good shower. And here he he definitely is playing that guy. Yeah. So he makes his look work for him because exactly. it's Uncle Willie looks like he has a distinctive smell. Yes. It's, yeah. You could smell him on the screen almost. So, but we meet him and the rest of the townsfolk. Right. You've got the prostitute Cordelia, which is funny. I didn't know she was Lana Turner in, in the uh, L.A. Confidential either. But you know, you've got her. You've got. Um, we're waiting on boyfriend. We'll talk about Thomas Hayden Church in a minute. You've got postal clerk Wally that looks like he could have been one of Andre the Giant's children because <laughs> he's, got, he's got the same haircut <laughs> that right. Andre sported in the 70s. And I don't know that dude from anything else, but I'm, I'm sure I've seen him in things. He seems like a TV actor kind of guy. And it, he's clearly got the crush on her, but he's been fired from the post office. So there's him, and then there's Geraldine or Geraldine. They call her both of them at different times, but she's Jada Jada Pinkett before she was, you know, Smith. And good old Irene. Now, CCH Pounder to me is the hilarious performance of the day because I don't know. She's like playing a a cross between one of the 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 mammies in <laughs> Gone with the Wind and uh, then like a boarding, you know, any boarding house runner of any time. Like I. I don't know what she's trying to channel, but it is it is awfully hilarious to listen to her spit these lines out with such uh, succession. Yeah, she definitely she definitely doesn't um, shy away from her material. That's for sure. She she's definitely found an angle and she's going to go with it. Yeah. And while it may only make sense to her, I think the movie's definitely better off for that kind of you know throwing yourself into something that's beneath you sort of performance. 
Yeah, well, I mean, at the time, I don't know that she, it, it was necessarily beneath her. I don't know what else she was doing. So, you know, this is before a lot of her big success. I mean, the shield is the thing that I think has made her great. But beforehand, I mean, she was just one of the people that got burned up in face off. You know, I mean, that's kind of all <laughs> I would have recognized her for. So, so I, I liked her in this though. And I liked Irene, especially when she gets her arm cut off later and, and the way she plays it, like she is just, she just kind of runs around like, okay, well, I just got the one arm now, you know? <laughs> yeah. She does a good job of uh, playing her severed arm for a laugh line. Yes. <laughs> we could talk about that after she gets her arm ripped off. Though. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's her later, but I liked her. And then of course we meet the boyfriend Roach, Thomas Hayden church. And uh, you talked about the wings era. Yeah. This is definitely wings era. Thomas Hayden church. Yeah. The, got the hair going. It's before he did the, workout regimen quote unquote that he had for Sandman and some of the other stuff he's done. And it's long before sideways. So, uh, he's, I don't know. I always think of Thomas Hayden church as just that voice doesn't look like it should be coming out of that man, but it does. Yeah. He's definitely, uh, one of the more interesting, uh, looking sounding actors in Hollywood. It's very much like a, He's kind of like a, a Patrick Warburton in that way. Yeah. And that, that voice should be coming out of that face. But here we are. I mean, yeah. he he looks like a murderer, but he kind of talks like a surfer. <laughs> well, he always does talk like he's high. I, I think that, that's, right. that's kind of clear. He's just this, this mellow, kind of low, droll. That's that's the Thomas Hayden Church, the best I could do of it. But, right. But talks he, like he's high. Yeah, he ta- talks like he's high and incredibly bored with everything that's happening around him. Not, like, no matter not, what the stakes. Not actually high, just talks like. <laughs> yeah. <Don't> sue us. <laughs> I I doubt he's listening to this show. So uh, maybe if he was still doing shows like Wings, he would be. But anyway, so. <laughs> but what I love, what the the people I love the most though in this opening act are the sheriff and the deputy that come in. Because you talk about like you know Barney and and Warren if they were running the Mayberry Circus as the sheriff and the deputy. First off, they're, they're, they're on the trail of whoever's been involved in this horrific auto accident, and they meet up with Billy Zane, who just walks out of nowhere like, oh, that was my car, and begins the trail of performance that he's going to lay on us. And my question to you is, what do you think the direction given to Billy Zane was exactly in how he was supposed to play this? Because, like I say, the first few minutes you think, oh, he might be the good guy, but then you learn he's the bad guy. But he never changed his tone. He sounds the same the whole time. I I can only assume that it was part of the plan, maybe, or that it's whatever he had planned for himself. Yeah. And all that basically changes is he drops his his uh, accent. Yeah. Throws his cowboy hat away and goes on a rant about the the old west dialogue or the old the old west clothing or whatever it was he was talking about. Yeah. I can't help but feel like either that was a choice by the directors or Billy Zane chose it and they didn't care enough to stop him. <laughs> well, and who knows how long it took him to actually shoot this. This doesn't look like it was one of those, you know, five month projects. This, this was like about three weekends, you know, on the back lot. This got turned out. So with a bunch of people that were coming over from the other sets of what they were working on that day, like Thomas Hayden Church literally looks like he walked off the set of wings. To changed out of the changed out of the blue overalls and just put on you know Spicoli wear and then came over to the set. So 
Um, I, I don't know where they were getting them out of, but I, I don't know. I liked it. I liked though that they play with that, right? You've got the sheriff and deputy Bob encountering the collector and he convinces the breaker is this dangerous thief. who's stolen something real valuable and they catch right up to him. Usually this would be the trope of like an entire movie. It's finally catching up to the guy and they get to it immediately. And sure enough, they're like, well, this is not, it's not even, you know, he had told them he had a different name and they, you know, they search him and all this and they find the thing they're looking for. And what gave me the first clue that, wait a minute, Billy Zane's the bad guy is he has a box for the thing to go in and he doesn't ask him just to stick it in there. He's like, would you pour that out real quick and then we can put it in there? And I was like, uh oh, there's something inside the magical amulet here that, that he doesn't like. And that's when, you know, we didn't learn at the time, but we find out later that that's the whole blood mixture bit. I think the the thing that keyed me off to it, because uh, I haven't seen it in years and I watched it again for this, I think the big key for me was when he wasn't like, all right, I'll take that. He was like, put this in this case for me mm-hmm. because clearly I can't touch it because I'm some sort of evil spirit. Right. Yeah. When you can't touch the item that you say was yours, <laughs> that's that's a clue <laughs> that it's probably going to burn you, hurt you some way. You can't lay hand on it uh, while it's in that form. Which I did find to be pretty interesting. So that that he asked him to do that, and then that's when you know all the, the hell starts breaking loose, almost literally at that moment, and we get to see some inept deputies firing guns, you know, at random. Yeah, they did a they did a good job setting up the sheriff and the deputy as the comic relief characters, mm-hmm. and then they promptly rip the sheriff's head off, <laughs> and you know, yeah. and then. Deputy Bob just kind of falls in line and really straightens up his act. He gets the standard goofy sidekick redemption yeah. uh, sort of plot. Well, tell me, is is the gore factor here, the way that the, you know, Billy Zane punches through the sheriff's head, basically Terminator 2 style, is that kind of what you would get on the show? Because I don't remember the effects of the show very much. Yeah, that's you would get that about every other episode, depending on how much money they'd spent. So far in the season, uh, there were clear, there were always, you know, cheaper episodes. And then there are always kind of the more splattery, like let's shoot a guy with a crossbow in the face kind of things. So it's a, it's a, it's really is like a good exemplar of, um, what the show itself was. Cause there, cause it's gory, but it's also goofy cause he punches a hole in the guy And it's, you know, and then, you know, Billy Zane goes out and does his little <laughs> crazy dance in the sand. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, he cuts his palm and out of the sand come all of these uh, creature looking things. They look kind of like, uh, you know, the rejected versions of Ripley um, from <laughs> <laughs> from uh, Alien Resurrection is what I got off of some of them. They, but they also kind of look like crypt keepers that were maybe rejected, but they just repurposed the puppets for later by stapling some dreadlocks on them or something. Yeah, and, and let's not forget that Billy Zane has green blood. Yeah, that's how you, that's how you know he's either evil or a Vulcan. Yeah, and I'm I'm guessing evil because uh, yeah. So at that point, I think at that point he's dropped all facade. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. So you know, I was gonna play it easy, but never mind. So, and the funny thing I love about this is that he never explains his motivation. He just plays the role of Mephistopheles, Satan, whatever you want to call him here with all these folks because once he realizes that you know he's outside and here comes the demon attack and stuff william sadler then 
you know, gets a gun and blows the eyes out of a couple of these things and then pours some of the blood over the the door frames and whatnot to block them out. And that's when he starts telling people what's going on. And what's funny to me about that is that Breaker it reluctantly lets everybody in on knows what's happening. Like I'm like at that point, man, they they know it's next level. Like it, you can go ahead and just level with everyone. You don't you don't need to just keep it secret. And I, I, that's why I laughed when you said he's not really friendly the whole time. I, that's true. It's like he he really wishes all these people would just go away. So because all he's trying to do is make it to the next morning. Yeah, the 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 one who seems the most friendly is the bad guy. <laughs> I mean, he at least pretends. Yeah, and, and uh, Breaker is just curt the entire time. Mm-hmm. Like when he is sitting around the table, and these people are attempting to make conversation with him while he's eating this bowl of, of guacamole soup with ketchup in it, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. He's just completely unfriendly. He's glowering. He's you know taciturn. It's in. It's really a good. I, I hate to say this, but it's actually kind of a good tortured guy performance. I will say this now. I, there are a lot of things I can complain about in this film, but the performances of Billy Zane, which you, I've already said, are, you're going to see to get wacky all the time, and it, that's going to be what it is. And William Sadler are not two of them. I think they both know what they're in, and they just kind of go with it, and they have fun with it. And I think what they told <laughs> William Sadler is, look, you're just going to be really pissed off at everybody the whole time, including yourself for reasons that are never explained. Got it? Go with it. And <laughs> that's kind of what he played it as. And I don't know, I liked it, though. I like the fact that Breaker is, you know, all the times when these, these kind of films come around, right, the hero is always this, you know, almost, you know, too righteous to be good kind of person. And it's almost like he's like, I didn't ask for this. It just happened to me, and I've been alive a long time, and I really don't want it, and it bugs me. There's a there's an episode in the first season of Buffy where they have this this puppet that is uh, possessed by a demon hunter's soul that's been hunting the same demon for like 80 years, and he's as the puppet, he's sort of a dirty old man, and and the reason he's become that way is because he's just sort of tired of being a puppet, and he all he wants to do is kill the demon so he can actually die and go away. And it's, it's sort of dark, but I thought of that watching Breaker. And I thought it's sort of the same kind of performance. I mean, I I get it. I liked uh, I liked the Breaker uh, character. Yeah, and uh, it it's the whole the whole concept to me. I think it it reminds me of something a little bit older. It reminds me of an episode of The Outer Limits mm. uh, called Demon with a Glass Hand. Have you have you seen that one? Ah, uh, yes, I have seen that one. So excellent. It, it just makes me think of that because he's on the run from these things that he doesn't really understand. He just knows he has to keep it out of their hands. Right. Uh, uh, not knowing he's a not really wanting the job, not knowing kind of being just like a dupe uh, for these forces that are well beyond his control and things he's not particularly equipped to do battle with. And but he's yet he has to do it because he's the only one that's and that's his charge at this point, right? And what we learn later is that he's really there because he's been driven there, and it's revealed to him somehow that Geraldine's going to be the one to take his place. That it's her turn to be the, I guess, the caretaker. If if Billy Zane's the collector, then she's the caretaker, and and she'll go on her own uh, eternal run or semi-eternal when, run. When 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 the stars align on his hand, right. That's when he knows that he's about to make the drop to the next demon knight. Right. That's what that's what Billy Zane calls her later in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and he knows it's her because she was tempted by 
his evil demonic visions, but mm-hmm. she spit in his face instead of you know falling for it like everybody else did. That's yeah. how he knew she was the one because she had uh, she had whatever it is that made her not take him up on his offer. Well, she has she has the goodness in her soul to be able to to resist temptation because what we learn about her is that she went to jail for theft and now she's out of jail. She's trying to put her life back together, but you know, this is kind of working this dead end job that you know the family member Irene gave to her and you know, she just sort of feels put upon, but she also is the to blame for the reason she is the way she is. So kind of like Breaker who was just a soldier in a foxhole you know, in World War One with one of his buddies that he kept him alive long enough for the guy to be able to pass it on to him. It's, again, reluctant heroes. But I, li- I like the idea there. And you hit on something there. Let's talk about the way that the collector tries to, and successfully in a lot of ways, seduces all these people. He, he tries Geraldine and fails with her, but he works on Cordelia, right? Because he's able to basically seduce her. Right. He just... Takes one look at her, deduces what her weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. I mean, given that, given her profession, it's not that hard to tell. Yeah, uh, what her thing is going to be, and it's being loved. Mm-hmm. So he's able to kind of use his Billy Zaneness to win her over. <laughs> I love though the way that that he plays it off, and then when he has possessed her, the demon version of her, how it comes out. I mean, she she kills Wally. She cripples Irene before she's finally taken out. I I liked it. I liked the the over the top goofy goriness of all of it. Yeah, it's kind of like um, the Evil Dead Two sort of yeah splattery, and it's it, it's not like an attractive sort of demon. It's not like the Billy Zane. It's a bumpy, gross skin conditiony kind of demon. Yeah, that's the funny thing. Like Billy Zane retains his form until the very, very end of being this kind of you know real cut, you know good looking guy or whatever. And Cordelia's beautiful woman, but then they turn her into this hideous thing when she goes in her rampage. Which is, I guess, it's the idea of well, we're going to make the inside be the outside, right? That old idea. I don't know if it's that or just because the he is an, he is different from those other demons in that. He can be. He can lose his eyes, and it doesn't kill him. Right. But when you shoot, say Cordelia in the eyes, it kills her. Right. Uh, I, I would say that it's because he's the arch demon. Yeah. I mean, we do see him use uh, psychic powers to brush her tears away from the parking lot, and he talks to her with a creepy smile on his face without actually moving his mouth. Ah, uh, good point. I forgot about the not moving the mouth bit. That's a good good idea. I forgot that he did that. So Yeah, he just kind of stares at her, and she hears the words in her head, mm-hmm. and he just kind of looks at her, and then that's that's when it's over. Now, we, we forgot one character we've got to talk about here, and it's the kid who Breaker was going to steal his dad's car early in the movie, Danny, the little kid. And they kind of throw him in and out of here. And he plays a key role at the very end of this. And I immediately when I see a kid in a horror movie like this, I, I've just been conditioned by Stephen King through the years. I'm like, yep, that kid's evil. You know, <laughs> like I just, I, I don't know. I, guess, I didn't play along with it at all. Now, that's what it turns out as. But did you get that sense, too? No. I, well, I didn't I think he was evil. I had assumed he was going to be there to just be in peril. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always a little kid who's going to, you know, 
screw up and let the demons in or 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 let the purge you know, happen in the house be, or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's always some kid that makes some mistake, right? So and I figured that would be his role. Mm-hmm. Um I, I I was pleasantly surprised when he did turn evil, though. I, I kind of like the way they t- turn him evil, too, in the end. But he's actually part of the plot here in the middle because he goes missing. And everybody then has to split up and look for him. And that's when Geraldine gets tempted and she spits it right back in the dude's face. And so, and I actually thought at that moment, I was like, oh, this is where Jada's going to get it. I did not figure out Jada was going to be the survivor girl until it was over. And I thought, you know, I, I wouldn't have picked that. I thought, I thought Sather would have walked out of here over the dead bodies of all these other people. I didn't know she was going to make it. Well, let's remember that, that Jada Pinkett is blonde in this movie. She is. That- so she, she fulfills the role of, she has the appropriate hair color to be final girl. <laughs> this is true. Maybe that is actually what they're trying to tell us too. So, <laughs> um, I, but I didn't catch that. I didn't think she was going to be final girl as it was, but along the way, Breaker has told them the story and then, then they hole up in the attic here. Right. right. And while this is going on and everybody's going around to look for Danny, Roach has snuck the key out of Breaker, a breaker satchel and goes to make his own deal with the devil, which I thought was hilarious because he's like, yeah, I don't care about these people. Screw these people. I want out of here. <laughs> and he doesn't even ask for anything cool. That's the thing. I'm like, he, I mean, he wasn't going to get anything out of it anyway because he gets torn to shreds by the demons. But he doesn't even go for that. He's just like, yeah, I figure this is yours. I'm, I'm going to give it back to you. Can I go now? See, I don't even think he asked for anything. I think he yeah. just said, all right, I'll give you this thing and I can leave. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, see you with that thousand years of hell or whatever it was he, he mentioned. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, and go ahead and kill that breaker guy. He's real annoying. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then I, lo- I do love the Billy Zane though. Oh, by the way, I lied. And then they just you know, tear him to shreds. And I was like, well, so long time to say church. It was nice knowing you. So I'll see you on that next episode of Ned and Stacy. And, and then we'll move on. But I, I don't know. I thought that was cool, though, because there's always somebody, right, that betrays the group. And, and, but it's rarely played off with such hilarity. Right, yeah. And they, and they set up Roach hard. They set up Roach so hard to be the guy to betray the group that I assumed it wouldn't be him. Yeah, because there in that movie there's always the guy who comes around at the end. Uh but in this case, no, he he he's that guy throughout the entire thing. Then he gives him then he gives uh, the key over and, you know, goes to his being eaten. Yeah. Destin yeah. You know, anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're good. No, I thought I thought he was actually going to come back as a demon. Like, that's the thing. I kept waiting for him and all these other people that got killed by the demons to then turn around and come back as demons. Cause we do that, right? That happens all the time. And I, I kept waiting for that to happen. And then when it didn't, I was, I was kind of surprised. I was like, okay, well, you know, they're actually dead. That's, you know, you don't get that in this kind of horror movie. A lot of times it's, they're always getting repurposed. Maybe there wasn't enough left of him to repurpose. <laughs> I suppose not. I maybe, maybe the, maybe the demons were hungry. You never maybe, know. maybe he was already evil. So there was no point in, yeah. Having to possess him because he's already a bad guy. Just, you know, <laughs> or maybe when they ate him to get to his soul, they're like, "Hey, he really didn't have one." So, <laughs> what do you know? So, but yeah, I, oh, no, I love this though because again, we we advance the chase a little bit forward, and we figure out in there that Irene and Bob discover that Wally was a dan- we talk about trope planning to attack the post office, but he had like guns, but no what no bullets. <laughs> And, but he did have a grenade vest that he was going to use that they will end up using to wipe out most of the demons. 
Right. I this was not long after the whole uh, going postal yeah. uh, thing, so I think it was still a relatively fresh reference then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I could be wrong. It could be. It could have already. Be- it it kind of pretty much instantly became a trope uh, that every postal worker is slightly disturbed or, or otherwise <laughs> dangerous. Yeah, and what's funny, my brother's worked for the post office for seventeen years. So when I saw this, of course, I had to joke with him about it, and he said, "Yeah, that was about the same time." <laughs> So. <laughs> did you tell him to make sure he had plenty of uh, bullets for his Uzis? I did. Just in case. Yeah, I'd so, you know, make sure you, when you pack your nine that you've got a few few round changes so to come around with it. But uh, well, I, what I figured was Wally was just kind of building up to it, so he's like buying it a piece at a time. He had to wait for that next unemployment check to come through or maybe his last paycheck <laughs> to get the bullets. I don't know. So... <laughs> but it, that, they're going to play that for that way, which I thought was, again, was funny. And so... The they the collector possesses Uncle Willie. Now this is the possession that I really like because I thought Dick Miller looked awesome as yeah. the possessed demon. He was great. He they did a they did a phenomenal job accentuating his weirdness. Yes, but making it pretty clear that Uncle Willie was harmless, a harmless old drunk. But this guy is definitely he, to me. He was probably the most scary looking. The most effective demon, mm-hmm. just because Dick Miller is such like a little skinny old man, you know. Yeah. Well, talk about it, though how he seduces him. He walks into a room and he he gets a I guess it's a mirage that he's in like a tiki bar that's full of topless uh, Hawaiian tropic bottles. Right, and Billy Zane is your bartender, making him an infinite glass of scotch yes like the the greatest stuff ever and he just keeps pouring it pouring it pouring it pouring it pouring it and then that yeah, that's how he seduces him but i thought you know again for the way the way you know satan evil gets troped in horror movies a lot of times is that it is a temptation and i'm always curious when they come up with a unique way of showing us and playing that temptation and especially when they do it in a way that is pretty accurate to if you read scripture the way that it goes you're never tempted with stuff that you don't care anything about you're tempted with what you're really possessed by you know and that you can't deal with without and i don't know i like the way that they played it it was it was yeah like i said it, it felt very authentic and it gets us our nudity quotient. Yes, so. it does, because there's quite a bit of that in, in the movie. To answer that question, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and now, was the show that way being on HBO? I kind of always assumed it was, because oh, when oh, I saw yeah. it in syndication, yeah. you can tell it was we, – we panned and scanned way, way tight on a lot of shots. So. Yeah, they were not uh... – Afraid of showing the best of uh, early '90s breast implants. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they definitely were going to show it off, and they they did a lot of that showing off um, in the scene. But I love you know they, again. We take out the uh, the Uncle Willie now, so we're getting it down. We're doing the pick off. You know, it's getting down to near the bottom, and Irene and Bob decide you know you guys go hide upstairs in the attic. We're gonna you know go down. Uh, what was that? It reminded me so much of uh, Vasquez and Gorman in Aliens, right? Where they, they right. shoot up all their ammo, which these never had any ammo, but it's like, oh, fine, you pull the pin, and then they, they blow away everything down below. Which, you know, I don't know a lot about high explosives, Ron, but I'm pretty sure if you blow the foundation out from underneath you, the attic is not going to stay. <laughs> I'm <laughs> fairly certain that it will come crumbling down. Well, it depends on uh, what kind of... Of ordnance, what kind of grenades they were. Yeah. If they were anti-personnel grenades, 
it would just be a lot of fragmentation that ah. would probably still kill the people in the attic, but it wouldn't take down the <laughs> the walls. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm looking at my my attic door right now. <laughs> And wondering what would happen if you threw a pineapple grenade at it. So. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so, well, I don't test that theory, but I, I agree. I think the shrapnel alone might cause a lot of damage. Because it wasn't just one or two grenades. It was like eight. Yeah, it was a whole vest. It was The idea was it, Wally was going to go in, shoot at the post office, pull the pins, and blow the place up. You know, so... There wasn't going to be survivors. There were just going to be pieces left. But we have to have a way for people to sacrifice themselves nobly and to, well, we, we've picked off the humans. we now got to pick it off where it's just the collector and the good guys, the, the two, three good guys left at the end. And what's left are Breaker, Geraldine, and Danny. And then we see what I think may be the most interesting uh, possession or brainwashing that there is. Danny gets a comic book that's a Tales from the Crypt that's basically where he does the whole I'm watching the story about us unfold on the pages. Yeah, and they they do a good job of matching the uh, pages of the comic book to the shots in the movie. Mm -hmm. It's almost the storyboards and then then panned up to, oh, and this is what we actually shot. So it looked that way. To me, the, the, my favorite part about that whole thing is that EC Comics originally shut down in the 50s because uh, Congress said that these comic books were making kids into murderers and demons and monsters and, and you know, jazz musicians. <laughs> Which are all the same thing, according to Congress. So. Right. So, and that's why uh, William Gaines went and found Mad because mm-hmm. he lost all his money from Vault of Horror and – and all the uh, his whole publishing empire basically uh, of EC Comics was put out of business because of the the uh, the furor over the the horror comics. So was that part of like McCarthyism and all that stuff from that time? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was it was right about that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, of course, you can kill all the Indians you want on TV, but you know, <laughs> if you have a skeleton in a comic book, it's going to make kids into monsters. Right. Uh, and that was a fun kind of history lesson, I guess, or just use of the history of the Tales from the Crypt comic book. I, I guess it's a way to be self-referential without being too creep showish. Because at this point, anything like this is going to get compared to that. And as a matter of fact, I think at this point, Creep Show Two had actually happened. So I mean, there, there's, yeah. yeah, there's even that to to go against. So I don't know. I liked it though because again, as a device. How are you going to brainwash, you know, a kid? Well, you got to go after something that the kid's into. So it's either GI Joe cartoons, the Muppet Babies, or the or the comic books. And I guess Danny was a little above the other two, so they went with the comic book. And and I like it though. I like how he turns evil and mortally wounds Breaker before Geraldine finally is able to destroy him. That was uh, both an effective use of the uh, door seal. Yeah, uh, that was a great kill. I thought. Um, and I also like the way that the uh, the demon attack went because uh, it kind of harkens it, – it's a look forward to our next uh, episode in that the demon uses his giant tongue to rip out Breaker's heart. Yes, yes, which is really grotesque. It's one of the most gross scenes that they have as a part of it. But Geraldine gets activated as the new guardian of the the key, and I love her idea here. She pours the blood all over herself 
and then gets a mouthful of it and spits it in the face of the collector. That was a cool kill. And that's what makes him transform into the golden child like demon there at the end. I also like that we can clearly tell the entire time she's got something in her mouth. Yeah. But they do a five minute uh, dance scene together. <laughs> yes. Where Billy Jane, Billy Zane is just swinging her around and, you know, going through dips and waltzing. And he's talking about how he wants to make her his wife. And we know it's coming, but they, they drag it out for it for so long in, in a good way that it's still kind of surprising. Cause it's like, Oh, right. She had that stuff in her mouth the whole time. The blood. I, I almost wonder if they didn't insert that scene because they're like, it's obvious she's about to spit in his face because <laughs> we've already seen her do that. Like, she's going to pay off what she's already done. So it, it, we need to take people's attention away from it. So we do this goofy dance where he tries to tell her he loves her and could you <laughs> me too, you know, and that, that whole bit. And then, of course, she spits it in his face, which was, again, a really cool way to kill him and destroy him. And and that's that's it. I mean, that blows it all wide open. And that was, to me, one of the more memorable scenes in the film. Mm-hmm. Like when I think about it, I think of uh, Billy Zane rising to the attic on that elevator with the green mist around him. Yep. And then the uh, the long dance scene that culminates in him becoming a you know the giant demon. <laughs> yeah. So, and then burning into flame and going away. I, I liked the way that this ended and they set it up. And then when they set her on the road, she gets on a bus and right before she gets on the bus, she pose out a little on there. Cause apparently she's picked up blood from other people along the way. She got it from, um, was it from breaker? breaker. Yeah. Okay. She, she, yeah. she, uh, poured it on herself the first time and then she went back and refilled it with breakers, uh, blood. Okay, so yeah, because the idea is that you can put a lot of noble people's blood in it, and it'll keep mixing with residues from Christ, and that will keep giving it its magical power and stuff. So I like how she pours a little bit on the seal, though, and they pull up like you know less than a mile away. There's another bus stop on the middle of this deserted highway, and there's a guy running around out there that well, it kind of looks like Mario Van Peebles in a cowboy hat, and he decides not to get on the <laughs> bus, and they. You know, exchange stares as you see the next chapter in this demon night tale take off. She uh, she encounters uh, Steve James on the road to Damascus. <laughs> I almost wondered if that was him. <laughs> I, I looked up to try to figure out who it was, but I couldn't figure out who it was. Yeah, it wasn't anybody I I, I knew from anything else. But he I kind of I don't know. He looks almost like Andre Benjamin too. So. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I yeah. can see that. So he's a little bit of that. But anyway, it's a cool ending, and then we go back to our epilogue. So now I I said I didn't want to talk about the the framing devices till the end. This has all been around the idea that the crib keeper is now in the movie business, right? And the opening scene is a woman in lingerie writhing on a bed talking about killing somebody who was almost as good as sex. Then she gets in a tub, and then John Larroquette, with like flesh hanging off of him, comes to stab her, and he yells, cut. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and then we flash back to the scene, and it's all about the crypt keeper saying, ah, did you like my movie? And then he goes to the, the premiere, and he gets his head cut off or something. Was that something on the show where they kept like executing the crypt keeper for some reason? Um. No, but he was always like falling apart. <laughs> uh, there was always some excuse for the puppet to get damaged in some way, but I, I don't ever remember him specifically getting like decapitated. 
but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. There are 92 episodes, and I don't remember them all, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'll say this, though. For me, this film would have been... Uh, I would have had just a grand time without the framing devices. For me, that it, they take me out of it, and I think they're supposed to. But as a not someone who is not a fan of the show, those seemed really superfluous for me. Yeah, and I think that's why... Um, I think in uh, the next one, they put the framing device in for the home video market, but they didn't have it in the original like theatrical cut. Okay, so I know there's a story behind that when we get to Ritual, too, so we'll talk about that then, but just as a device, you know, I've already said it didn't work for me. What did you think of? Uh, I, I, just, I enjoyed it just for the sheer nostalgia factor of seeing the Crypt Keeper again and hearing that crazy voice and, and all the terrible puns. <laughs> to, to me, that's just what cements it as an episode of Tales from the Crypt. That was generally how the show, you know, went along the crypt keeper kind of introduced the action and then showed up at the end to make some bad, some goofy jokes. And, and then we got the theme music and the, the credits. Right. So it's sort of like the anti Rod Steiger from the old twilight zone. So Yes. Rod <laughs> Sterling. Not Rod, Rod whoa, let me redo that. Whoa. I just brought in the priest from Amityville Horror. Whoa. Yeah. Don't let the internet listen to that part. <laughs> yeah. Let's fix that. So, hold on. So, in other words, he's the anti-Rod uh, Sterling from the old Twilight Zone. Right, yeah. yeah. He is the chain-smoking, uh, <laughs> greasy-haired narrator. Or maybe he's what happened to that person after all that smoke. Yeah, he's, he's dead Rod Sterling, yeah. <laughs> there we go. I, I, he certainly could have been. So, well, Ron, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings for the show. So, what are yours for Demon Knight? Well, I have to admit that having not seen this in a long time, I found it really enjoyable. Uh, I enjoyed the pure uh, goofiness of it. I really enjoyed the performances from our two lead characters, and I liked the the weird thing that CCH Pounder was doing. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to give it a medium popcorn. I thought it was legitimately enjoyable uh, if you like dumb things. <laughs> I, I will say this, if you like dumb things that are remotely scary and kind of fun and where the actors clearly know what they're doing and they're in on it and they go with it, then this is definitely your movie. Again, as somebody who was not a fan of the show, was only peripherally aware of what the show was all about, I just enjoyed the story. And I enjoyed the, the goofy acting and the whole trope of it. And I actually thought it was, eh, you know, it was pretty inventive for what it was. I mean, it's, there's nothing necessarily new. But it was also done really well. I think the effects work. And for 1995, I thought they, they held up okay. They weren't too bad for a $12 million film. I really I really liked the uh, the rubber suit demons. I thought those yeah. looked really well. Those worked really well. And I, I think it's a really solid entry in the horror comedy genre that is really hard to do right. And I thought yes. that was enough of both of them to stand up alongside your Return of the Living Deads. Yeah, yes, or Ghostbusters, or something, which is kind of the crown jewel of horror comedy. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, those those films are hard to get right, and this one is one of the ones that does, you know. And I enjoyed it, so I'm going to say this is actually large popcorn for me. I had a real good time with this, and I will say this now: this would be the kind of film to watch with like a group of friends. This would be fun to watch with people and be able to laugh at it with others because it's certainly something to be enjoyed in mass, and I can see why. 
people went for it. It made money. And why they real quickly said, we got to get another one of these out. This was huge. Who can we get? And then we come back with Bordello of Blood. So we'll we'll talk more about that one next time. But uh, I enjoyed this as well. So I'm going to go large popcorn. I'll go ahead and upgrade my popcorn, too. Let's do a large popcorn. <laughs> okay, so large popcorn for both of us for Demon Knight. So, folks, you can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Click the link for film strip, and you can find all the episodes there uh, linked by keyword or host or title or series or whatever they are. They're all there. You can also find links to our other webs- our other podcast, The Art of Slaying, where our Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective resides that you've heard me mention a few times, and you can also you can also link to the Fabish Factor film podcast, as well as Squared Circle Flashback. Find links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, so you can catch up with us on social media as well. We appreciate your support. And Ron, folks can find your writing at denofgeek.com and popfi.com, correct? That is correct, sir. Alright, well folks, check it out. Let us know what you think, and until next time, Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. the crypt.